All right. So welcome to another episode of Mysterious John Podcast. I am Andy. This is my co-host, AJ. Hi. And with us is Sarah, our other co-host. Hello. And our guest this week is Dr. Dan Keating, who, remind me if I'm wrong, but you teach at Sacred Heart Seminary still? Correct. Yeah, that's right. Uh, what subjects do you teach at the seminary? Right now, I'm teaching uh, the church fathers to the uh, graduate seminarians. Uh, I also teach a, a regular class on ecumenism and interreligious dialogue from a Catholic point of view. And I teach a set of classes in our mission and evangelization program, models of evangelization, apostolic fathers in evangelization. I teach a class on discipleship. Um, so a set of things to do with mission and evangelization. In the past, I taught classes on scripture, especially intro classes. Um, and that was actually my my first degree. My master's at Sacred Heart was in sacred scripture. So Awesome. So this episode, actually leading up to that, is actually on scripture. So we're going to be talking about the Old Testament, the New Testament, and everything in between. But first, our intro song. And thank you to Nick who made that for us. He's actually sitting off camera right now, AJ's brother. So thank you much, bro. Yeah. So the first part of this uh, we're going to get into, and we, we sent you these in advance, are some questions people had about scripture. Great. So the first one, if you're ready, is uh, why does the Catholic Bible have more books in it than the different Protestant Bibles? Sure. So that has to do with the Old Testament only. Um, the New Testament, in terms of books, is the same between all confessing Christians. So Orthodox, Catholics, and Protestants all have the same identical New Testament. In terms of books, there might be a verse here or there that's included or alternate readings, but it's basically the same. So the differences occur in the Old Testament. And they don't go back to the Reformation, actually. They go back to, you might say, um, <laughs> the, cause, the cause of this has to do with Judaism. Mm. has to do with the Jewish people. Uh, and what they did with the Bible. So when Christianity was born in the first century, um, there was a, <clears throat> a kind of working Hebrew canon. Of course, it wasn't published. We don't know exactly what every last book was at the time, but we have a pretty good idea of what the canonical books were. Let's say at the time that Jesus was talking about the scriptures that he would have had. But there wasn't a fixed canon in the same way. There were, there were still some openings in terms of which books might be included, even in Judaism of the day, which of course the early church was assuming. But what happened, um, well before the time of Jesus, uh, the majority of the books that we call the Bible were translated into Greek in the city of Alexandria, starting in about 250 BC, maybe all the way up until about 100 BC. And um, these books then, 
became known in the version called the Septuagint, named after the 70 translators. So in other words, you've got this Hebrew canon that it being used, let's say, among the Jews in Israel and other places, but then you've got this Greek version of various books. Well, when the fall of Jerusalem happened in 70, and the Jewish people had to kind of re, um, regather themselves, what happened was the rabbis who regathered ended up defining the canon, the Hebrew canon, um, somewhere probably around 150, 100 to 150 AD, after the church was already using both the, Jew, the, the Hebrew and the, and the Greek scriptures. And um, what they defined as the canon was a bit more narrow. In fact, what they defined as the canon is what the Protestant canon is. So you might say what the rabbinic Jews defined as the Hebrew canon is what the Protestants basically said, this is the canon. Um, well, what happened then in the church was there, there actually were, this complicates things, there were two or three more Greek translations made by different Jews, not Christians, but Jews, that were kind of competing for a, a, a Greek version of the Bible. But the Septuagint, the original one that had been done, was taken up by the Christian church. Mm -hmm. um, and this, the, the Septuagint version, had more books from way back when than the Jews eventually allowed in. And some of them had probably been written originally in Greek, like the Book of Wisdom, and never had a Hebrew original. So what happened was you get this famous dispute between St. Augustine and St. Jerome about which is the right canon. Is it the wider Greek canon, which was also a Jewish canon, or is it the Hebrew canon that was later defined by the rabbis? Jerome makes the argument that we should follow the Jews in this and, and take the, the narrower canon. Augustine argued that the church had been using the Septuagint since the beginning, and so we should go with the wider canon. Well, Augustine's view predominated going forward, but it was never defined as a final thing. And so even in the Middle Ages, you had discussion among people in the Catholic world, are the are the extra books in the Greek version actually canonical? Do they say they have the same level? There was debate about this. When the Reformation happened, the Protestant churches ended up opting for the Hebrew canon because they thought, well, they had reasons for it. They thought it was the more reliable one. It's certainly the core books, but they also, they didn't like some of the books that were in the wider canon and what they said, what they tended to uh, uh, teach. The Council of Trent then in response to that, I forget the exact date, but we're talking 15, in the 1550s, I believe, might've been the 1560s. There were three different sittings of the council. Ended up defining the Old Testament canon according to the Septuagint. And so, in fact, Protestants defined their canon in official way before the Catholics did. And thus you have in the Catholic Bible a set of extra books, as it were, beyond what was in the Hebrew canon. Now, the, the irony is that the Eastern Orthodox also adopted the Septuagint, but there were different versions of the Septuagint mm -hmm. in the ancient world. And some of them had even more books in them than others. And so the Orthodox have more books than the Catholics, and the Catholics have more books than the Protestants. The Orthodox have like four or five extra books beyond the Catholics, including Third Maccabees, um, the Prayer of Manasseh, uh, the, an extra Psalm, Psalm 151. Whereas then the Catholics have these extra books that include things like Sirach and Wisdom, Tobit, Judith, additions to Esther and Daniel, one and two Maccabees. These are the books that are extra that were part of the Septuagint. So you might say, <laughs> The problems created between the Hebrew and, and Greek versions in the Jewish world 
and what ended up getting defined when there was debate about it and then the two different churches at the reformation defined them differently so that's why a catholic bible has these extra books in it okay. I hope that wasn't too long no no, 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 no. Was, you can go as long as you want um i say this is for people's education yeah. so um i did hear once that uh one of the differences between say the uh, jews of jesus's time and the sumerians was also on which scriptures uh they read where the sumerians relied primarily on the the five books of the torah well right jews had a much more expanded library is that true that's true um the samaritans um adopted just the Pentateuch. So the core of the Old Testament is the Pentateuch. I mean, it, for any Jew, this is the kind, it's like the Gospels in the New Testament, except even maybe more so. Mm. So it's really the core. Um, and the Samaritans, not only did they have a Pentateuch, they had a slightly different version of it. So mm. there were, one of the things we realize is some of the books of the Bible um, had a version done, and then there were additions made. This is why we have additions to Daniel and Esther. There were probably additions to Isaiah and Zechariah and and, um, and Jeremiah, um, based on what we know. And so the books were, in a sense, at times growing or shrinking. So you actually had different versions of the same book, even in the Hebrew. This makes things, of course, very complicated. You have to decide which is the, the correct one. The other thing to add, it's fairly clear that the Jewish groupings of Jesus's day, let's say the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and so on, actually had a different set of canonical scriptures. Mm. The Pharisees, in fact, had the wider canon. Um, and they were the ones who ended up in later time, 100 years later, 50 to 100 years later, um, identifying this canon that was narrower than the Septuagint, but much wider than the Sadducees seemed to have wanted. Mm. So, for instance, books like Daniel were not included by the, the Sadducees. And Daniel clearly speaks about the resurrection of the dead. And so Paul can disrupt the the um, Sanhedrin by saying, I'm a Pharisee and I stand on the resurrection of the dead. And he starts this big fight between the two parties of the, of the grouping and, <laughs> because the Pharisees included Daniel and the Sadducees did not. And so they started their own fight. Paul was very clever. Instead of focusing on him, he got a fight going among the people in the council. It must have been so it's worth saying that there was fluidity, not only in like what was the canonical version of a given book, but which book should be in even at the Hebrew level. I mean, even at the level of the Hebrew versions, well, when you add some of these extra books like Maccabees, but especially like Wisdom that was probably written in the Greek only, um, basically what the rabbis said was, we're only going to, this is like after the time uh, the mm -hmm. church was founded, we're only going to, to have books in the canon that were originally written in Hebrew, mm -hmm. although some of them have Aramaic parts too, like Daniel, mm -hmm. and that have um, that are ancient, that aren't somewhat recent. So let's say the book of Sirach was highly prized by this tradition, but for them, it was too recent. It was clear that it was only written in like 180 BC and nobody, nobody denies that. For them, that was just too recent to get into the canon. It wasn't quite old enough, Interesting. but it was a book they, they treasured and it was in the Septuagint and the church included it. So it wasn't even, are the books any good? They had certain criteria at the time that caused them to be a bit narrower, but their canon, that is the, the, the Jewish canon that is still today their canon, um, was wider than, let's say, what the Sadducees or the Samaritans would have said. Um, if I might just add one little touch that, that's kind of curious. If you go to a Jewish Bible today, let's say you got a copy of the Jewish Bible, of course, it's only the Old Testament. 
It's called the Tanakh, which are the three letters T and K, referring to law, prophets, and writings. Mm. And the way that the Jews organize their Bible starts with the Pentateuch and has a whole bunch of, uh, it starts with the, the five books, that's the, the T, the Torah. And then you have the prophets, but for them, this is different than us. Prophets includes Joshua, Judges, 1, 2, Kings, includes all the historical books, oh. including the great prophets. Mm -hmm. And then the writings include this whole collection of things that doesn't fit those categories and that came later. And the first book in that heading is the Psalms, not Job like in our wisdom books, but the Psalms. Oh. And then come a whole set of books. Interestingly, the last books in the Jewish Bible are 1 and 2 Chronicles. Why? Probably because that was the last book chronologically that got added. They just kept adding them to the scroll of the writings. Now, a couple of interesting things. When Jesus says in Luke 24, everything written about me in the scriptures, in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled, it's a good chance that he's actually referring to this threefold designation. Mm. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms as the first book of the third category. So we have some thought that the ordering of books was also originally much more like the Jewish present ordering. It got the Septuagint, in a sense, rationalized the books a bit more and put them in categories, topics. Okay. And that's what we inherited. And so our order of books um, follows the Septuagint. Now we can see a providential order in it because what does the scripture end with for us? The Old Testament ends with Malachi. How does Malachi end? It ends with the promise of one coming to announce the coming of the Lord. And John the Baptist picks right up on this. And so we go right from Malachi to John the Baptist, the beginning of the gospel, and it's a beautiful connection. But humanly speaking, it's coincidental. Providentially, I think we can say there was an ordering, a reordering of the books in a way that helped point forward to Christ. Anyway, probably, again, more information than you wanted. No, but there we this are. is perfect. Um... Dr. King, I have a question real quick about the Dead Sea Scrolls and whether that sheds sure. any light on the difference between these versions of the Bible and the canon. Great question, Sarah. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Dead Sea Scrolls were found at a center called Qumran on the kind of northwest corner of the Dead Sea up on the cliffs. And it was quite a find because probably during the Roman invasion of Israel, the scrolls were hidden in the ground in caves to keep the Romans from getting them. Um, so we've got these scrolls buried in the ground and dug up and you know that, well, these weren't just copied and additions made. These are the original things. These go back to the first century. Not only that, but many of the scrolls go back further. Mm -hmm. Like many of them are 100 to 200 years before that. Now, a lot of the scrolls have been destroyed or you know, we've got little fragments. We, we don't have these massively well-kept scrolls, but through remarkable scholarship, you can piece together this collection. And it included, I think, in fact, there are fragments of all the biblical books, but Esther. That's at least what I've heard, that there's a fragment of all the Hebrew canon, not the wider Septuagint canon, there's, but there's, there's fragments from every book but Esther. Um, and it doesn't mean Esther wasn't there. It could be coincidental. It's a, it's a short book and maybe it just wasn't kept. It didn't survive. In answer to your question, what it shows is that the, let's say that the present day Hebrew version of the Bible, which was kept by the Jews 
and was given a kind of final form as late as like eight or 900 AD, eight or 900 years later. It sort of got its final, it was, it was crystallized. They, they made some decisions about what the form of the, of the book was. What we know is the fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls and this later version are overall quite close. They're, what it shows is there was a remarkable accuracy kept over hundreds of years of copying the Hebrew scripture. However, there are some variations and it shows that, yes, there was a lot of continuity, but also it shows, I think it might be either with the book of Jeremiah or Ezekiel, don't quote me on that, I'm not sure. Um, they, they show a variation, which probably points out that there were different versions of the Hebrew text of some of these books that were circulating around the time. Um, and, and so overall, it shows great continuity. Obviously, there are no New Testament texts in Qumran. Mm -hmm. um, they were hardly even written then, and they certainly would have been kept by the sect of the Jews who were at the time Christians. So it's all Old Testament, but it also, of course, shows a lot of the literature in between. The, the, a lot of their own literature and other books that are not included in the Bible, but were written by the Jews between, let's say, 400 BC and the time of, of 100 AD, You've got a, a, this, this books that were open to us that we just didn't know about. So it's fascinating to get um, a little bit better idea of the literary remains of the, of the various Jewish groupings of, the, of those years. So a uh, follow-up question to that, unless you wanted to follow up with anything, sir? No. Okay. I, had, I had one additional comment. I had read that um, there's this period, roughly like 20 AD to 90 AD, where we see kind of a, a dearth in writings. So before then we have writings and then we don't have much from that time period, uh, even historical writings of the time. Uh, I was wondering if there was some correlation of event, maybe uh, a, you know, the burning of the uh, Library of Alexandria or something that, that like led Sorry, to- So this is AD, AJ, this is 2080 yeah. to 90 AD. Yeah. I've never heard that that stated or asserted. So okay. I'm just trying to think on my feet here. Now, obviously, most of the New Testament documents were written during that time. Mm -hmm. um, at least in a more conservative estimate, all the New Testament writings would have been written by, let's say, 95. Right. With the Gospel of John coming possibly at the end of that. So at least in that period, there was a very fertile time for New Testament for the for the Christian writings. Yeah. Um, there was also a, a Jew who was writing in Alexandria during this time. I, I'm not sure exactly. He, his life overlapped with the life of Christ. I think he might have been a slightly older contemporary. His name is Philo of Alexandria. Hmm. He was quite, and he was writing more Jewish philosophical writings there. You might say it's allegorical interpretation of the Jewish scriptures and melding it with, with like Greek philosophy. It's a very interesting mix that, um, he was much taken up by the Christians. He was certainly writing in this period, probably the later part, although none of those writings would have been biblical, like, like biblical canon. Mm -hmm. There are also, I, I'd have to review the dates, but there are some writings like, uh, is it 4th Ezra? Um, there are a couple of other Jewish writings that tend to get placed in the first century AD. Okay. Um, that I studied some years ago, and I'm a little foggy on the exact dates. I did some graduate seminars at the University of Michigan with friends on a set of these Jewish texts, some of which, as I recall, are dated to the first century AD. 
so I don't know what that reference is referring to. It's a criticism that I'd uh, come across in some uh, non-biblical critics of the scriptures to say they have all these, you know, Christian-specific writings from this time period, but there's few outside corollaries, such as like Josephus or um, the Roman historian. I'm forgetting his name off the top. Probably Tacitus. Tacitus, yes, correct. Who came later? Josephus came earlier. Yeah. Uh, so there's that criticism of, you know, well, all of these Christian writings, sure, but they could all be biased. Um, and there's no... I see. I mean, Josephus is actually in that period. He was writing between 70 and 90. Right. Um, and of course, he, depending on what you think is interpolated in Josephus, he makes reference to the Christian things or not. Some think they're later Christian interpolations. Yes, um, so there were some other writings going on, but they wouldn't necessarily have had contact with this Christian movement. Like Philo probably would not have had, I'm sure. Um, the other writings going on, some of them may well have, but they don't show obvious evidence of it there. Um, so again, I, second Baruch, fourth, fourth Ezra, I think there are a few writings like this. Um, there's another document we studied right now, its name is slipping my mind. I think get placed in the first century, but don't show echoes of Christian realities. Okay. Yeah. So kind of a wrap up question for this. So taking everything that's happened with how scriptures made or written, excuse me, not made. Um, and someone who struggles with scripture or struggles with the faith or doesn't believe looks at all of this with the different versions and the different people and the Protestants and the different sects within Judaism Coming from the uh, evangelical side of it, how would someone who's Catholic explain this? Like, what is a good way to help a non-believer or someone who's even struggling with it, but may, may believe to make sense of all the different versions and how we can really know what we know about the Bible to be true? Sure. After saying all that, the differences are not massive. Um, there's a huge agreement on the basic fundamental, you know, uh, content of scripture. So the New Testament Christians, anyway, of the different sorts, all hold to the same canon, again, with maybe a verse or, or, or phrases that are alternate renderings that some prefer over others, but you're talking about a remarkable agreement there. Um, and there are other books that were candidates to maybe be in the New Testament that, in a sense, didn't make the cut, but those books are around. People can look at them if they want to. Uh, books like The Shepherd of Hermas, um, or the, the Epistle of Barnabas, um, the first letter of Clement. Um, these were at least circulating uh, late first, early second century and were in certain churches sort of lists of holy or potentially canonical books, but didn't end up making a, a, a cut. In other words, the New Testament has a remarkable agreement. And the variations there are, as far as I know, don't affect any, any doctrinal stance. They might, they might affect your understanding of something, but they, there's no Christian doctrine that hinges on a, on a New Testament um, issue about which is the right text. When it comes to the Old Testament, while there's a fair bit of variety, there's a remarkable consistency, especially to the core books. Again, when you're talking about, you know, nobody thinks that Tobit is like a crucial book for delivery of, of Israelite faith or something. And if you have it or don't have it, you've lost the plot. Um, or Third Maccabees or something like this. These, these can be helpful books, but they're not core books. The core books are the Pentateuch mm -hmm. and the historical books giving the, the main, the main um, 
narrative, but then also the prophets. And while there's disagreement about some of the texts in the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, um, the Psalms, my goodness. Uh, and everyone agrees on the 150 Psalms, even if we number them differently, that's the same Psalms. Mm -hmm. So after saying all that, the core, the large core, the vast majority is held in common. Now, that even being said, it doesn't mean that they're divine. I mean, human agencies could have done this. You could come up with all kinds of reasons. Nothing proves the scriptures by saying, you know, we don't believe the scriptures descended from heaven, a bit like the, you know, Joseph Smith got the tablets of, you know, the Book of Mormon like that. It, mm -hmm. They were written by human agents. There's a messiness in the way God works and speaks. And I think what you can say about these books, and this is true for Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox, we all have to say, if God's providence wasn't at work in the writing of these books, then we have nothing to stand on. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's nothing, uh, there's not kind of, a, again, a divine um, descent of these books that came from, you know, from heaven, and then they fell, and there they are in some language we all knew. It came over in many, in various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by a son. But even that speaking in the son comes through all these apostles, the four gospels, you know, it, it comes in a various and in a sense messy way in translation, my gosh, the, the, you know, so we've got to believe in divine providence. Now, let me add one thing on that. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the books also don't just come in a sense through an individual inspired person and sort of show up and, and, and slot themselves in. Um, sure, there's inspiration. If there's not inspiration, we don't have an inspired canon. God inspired the authors to write as they wrote, and yet they wrote freely, not in some kind of ecstatic mm -hmm. trance that they were taken over. At the same time, we do believe that um, the, the community, as it were, of God's people had a huge amount to do with discerning and recognizing these texts. We tend to, we're very quick to do that with the church, but we also have to do that with Israel. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but the, you know, the Christian church as such didn't create the, the, the Old Testament, the scriptures upon which the revelation of Jesus is given. It came through Israel. Mm -hmm. And those books were written and discerned and found their way into this kind of canonical form by the discernment of the people of God under some kind of grace from God. Um, it happened in, you might say, in Israel, in determining the Hebrew canon, at least in the large part, even if the, the, the exact contours of there's disagreement over. And it happened in the church, when the church made discernment over time about what are these books that actually communicate the faith that we've received. And so if you don't believe that there's providence both in the inspiring and in the discerning by the community, that is by the church and by Israel, then I think you, you just say, well, this is all a human invention by some clever people, but why would we bother to believe this? Mm -hmm. um, if you don't believe in God's providence in the first place and are come to recognize these as, as given and find the word of God there, you can't somehow dig in them with archaeological tools and find divinity buried in, in them. You can't dig into the books and, oh, well, there's the divinity. And that doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, you're not going to find the divine quality of them by digging with, with archaeological tools. Yeah, there's this, this sense of you have to actually develop a personal relationship with the divine. And even in the scriptures, you're only talking to people who've had that relationship. You're not talking directly in a sense. That's exactly right. And of course, we're, we're born into the church, let's say for ourselves, the, the, 
the Israelites were born into Israel, we're already born into a people that's heard the word of God and is preserving it. And so we, we also don't just, we, we need to make that our own. We need to come to, to believe that and to follow that way. But we also have, in a sense, the hearing community that yeah. has heard the word of God, has recorded it, and discerned that while God may have spoken in many ways, these are the writings upon which the covenant in some way depends. Um, that these are the core writings that stand as God's fundamental revelation of his covenant, the old and the new. And thus we have the old and the new Testament. Right. Testament only just his, means covenant. Yeah, only by his revelation that we can actually know more about him in order to take those steps for that relationship. Exactly. Uh, moving on to Andy's next question. Yes. All right. So we're going to do two more and then jump into the rest of it. Are the script, or, or I'm sorry, someone else sent me this question, so I'm interpreting it. Are the scriptural justifications for all of the Catholic sacraments in the Bible, I think is what they're trying to go for. Right. Um, I mean, Catholics, of course, would say that there, there are. Um, <laughs> and I think that that's very justified. I think you can, you can see that. The debate comes not so much if there's any justification. Like, I think no one would deny that there's elements or things that point to all the sacraments in the scripture. Question is, did Jesus command um, these things in a form that makes them true sacraments. So let me, let me make, make it simple. Pretty much all Christians, I mean, there's, there's always some Christians that don't believe, don't believe something, but pretty much all Christians believe in baptism and in some form of the Eucharist, sometimes called the Lord's Supper or communion. Why? Because Jesus said, do this. Um, he said, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, make disciples of all nations. It's pretty clear. He said, do this in memory of me. This is my body. This is my blood. And Christians have said, well, the Lord commanded that. And so uh, all agree that those two sacraments, as it were, although some, some Protestants don't call them sacraments, they don't like the word, but they call them ordinances, things that are ordered, that are commanded. The question ends up being not, are the sacraments in the scripture, but are they fully hmm, authorized in the scripture. Mm. So marriage is clearly um, in the scripture. And you look at something like Ephesians 5, where um, the marriage of a husband and, and, and a man and a wife is, is, a, is modeled on Christ in the church. You can see a kind of God ordaining to it. Um, Jesus himself refers back to Genesis 2, when talking about divorce and says, a man shall leave his father and mother and, and he, he upholds the whole, might say, the, the fundamental text in Genesis 2 on marriage. But he doesn't say, do this in this way, or this is, so it's clearly there. Um, and the church has, had, had always believed that marriage was in Christ, but it took a little bit of time, in fact, to discern that this is properly speaking a sacrament. Um, so penance and reconciliation. Um, you know, confess your sins one to another. It's in James, you know. Um, you see the Lord saying to the disciples, if you loose anyone's sins, they are loosed. If you bind them, they are bound. That's pretty clear language of judging. It's, it follows on the Jewish understanding of being a, a judge of the people and you, you free or you, you bind people based on an account of what they've done. Um, and I believe in the early church, you actually stood up in front of the crowd and confessed publicly. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm glad we didn't keep that tradition. <laughs> <laughs> so 
Sorry, you know, Bob. Even, why? Yeah. Sorry. You only confess, by the way, serious sins. What we would also often call venial sins, like thoughts of the mind. Right. Uh, they, they weren't, they weren't like, you didn't get up and say, I had some bad thoughts today about my brother. I mean, that wouldn't have been the kind. So that's all to say, you know, the, the orders, you, you have the Lord clearly setting aside this grouping and, and, and giving them, you know, he, he, he names the 12 as clearly modeled on the 12 patriarchs, that there's a kind of re new founding of the people of God in Israel that includes now the Gentiles being brought in. Mm -hmm. So you've, you've clearly got some kind of orders, but it's not all worked out in a sense in the way we now have it. Um, even praying for the sick, uh, clearly, again, in James, you know, let, let the elders come and anoint them. So you've got precedent for all of these very clearly in the scriptures. They're not absent, but they come more like examples than rather than by commands. And so you'll get certain Protestants will say, we're only to do what the Lord told us to do. That's the main thing. The others are fine to do, but they don't have the same warrant. Whereas, of course, as Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, a belief in tradition and in the role of the church, having some authority given by Christ in these matters, to, uh, to define and determine what God actually has set aside as the primary channels of grace to uh, water, to nourish the Christian life, which is what the seven sacraments are. It's not, they're not the only sources of grace, but they're the primary sources of grace for, um, for in a sense, bringing into being and nourishing the life of grace in the body. Any follow-up questions or... Oh, all right. So the last one we'll tap into is uh, why do we need to know scripture to be good Christians? Can't we just be good people? <laughs> I don't <laughs> yeah, get Some of these are from college students for the record. So. No, no, that's great. I mean, it's a great question. And in a sense, you might even say, why do we need to be Christians at all? Not just know mm -hmm. the scripture. I mean, the, the question is a bigger one. Does it really matter to know Jesus? Is the goal to be a good person? And if knowing Jesus helps you do that, great. If you don't if you can be a good person without that, then you can dispense with that. And the implication is the goal is to be a good person. And what's a good person? Well, that's kind of defined by the culture. It's a constantly moving target. Mm -hmm. And it mainly means don't offend people in the way that our culture tells you not to offend people. Um, and that's always changing. And it doesn't amount to a whole lot. And you can justify almost anything, but maybe mass murder. So um, I think the key answer to it isn't so much a scriptural question. It's does knowing Jesus Christ make any difference? And what's the goal of life? The Lord wants us to be good. He really does. And in fact, would say we cannot be really good <laughs> without being in the one who is good and by his grace. But while being good is a part of what it means to be a Christian, it's not like we don't care about that. Um, Clearly, we, we do. I mean, there's places in the Old and New Testament that basically, in their own words, say, do good and, and, and avoid evil. Um, we're meant to do good. But salvation is much more than just being good. It's a part of what we're meant to be, but it doesn't get to the core issue, which we, 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 need, we need a new birth. We need to be brought back to life. We need to be brought into the living one. And it's not just a matter of now kind of cleaning us up and being good. Um, we need to be remade we need redemption and, and jesus, so that, I, I believe jesus tries to actually put like an emphasis on what good is where he says no one is truly good except my father in heaven so he's saying if you actually want to be good in the sense that 
the divine considers good, you have to enter into this relationship. No, that's that's right, AJ. And you know, it's even a little more subtle than that. You you paraphrased it. I did. Jesus says, no one is good but God alone. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the here's the subtlety of that. He seems to be deflecting the compliment. Good teacher, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Of course, he is God. Right. So he is good. Mm -hmm. And so the irony is, though he seems to deflect it, in fact, he does, it does apply to him, but he's actually pointing to the fact that goodness resides in God, not in just human teachers. But of course, he's not just a human teacher. He is actually God teaching. So this is the subtlety of that answer. It both deflects and it invites. Um, but no, that's goodness itself is a, is a trait of God. And um, we would hold that people can do good apart from Christ. They can do singularly good actions. Catholics would uphold this. There's a natural law and we can do good in individual acts. Mm -hmm. But that's very different than being good. And the problem with the human race isn't just that we're not good. The problem is that we're spiritually dead mm. and we need to be brought to life. We need a new birth in, in Christ in redemption. We need to be made new. We need our sins forgiven and a reconciliation to take place and to be brought back to life. Yes, we, we want to do good and we strive to do good. It's a very good thing to do good, but it's not, when you focus on that, you miss the point of redemption. You miss the problem that redemption is solving. Say this, this reminds me of the, the new wineskin versus the old wineskin argument of the redemption is that we need to be made a new wineskin. But the other thing I was thinking as well in a moral theology, theology class talked about this is if, like you said, to be good, we have to know God in order to know God we have to find him through the means in which he communicates us communicates to us. And one of the main ways is scripture. It's God's word Absolutely. that God has revealed to us so that we can come to know him. It's a living, breathing document. It's not just a book that was written. It's a living word uh, through yeah. his son and, and the Holy spirit and the Trinity. And so in order, if we are going to be good Christians, even to use their term, then we have to know scripture so that we can know God who is the source of good and know true good yeah. versus knowing our version, which can be very subjective. That's right. Absolutely. And, you know, the church herself recommends to the faithful, not only to the, you know, theologians doing their theology, but to the faithful that they really get to know the scripture well. And I mean, one of the things I'm, I'm really struck by and encouraged by, I don't know if there was a conspiracy on this or not, but looking at the Lansing Diocese and Bishop Boyer's, you know, Year of the Bible, and, which I've been following, um, or what's going on in Detroit with Archbishop Ignoron, where they're trying to also kind of ramp up the scriptural study, or this this blog by Father Mike Schmitz, which has been so popular. The Bible in Jeff Cavins is all going on at the same time. I'm thinking, you know, was this a coincidence or did some, was someone talking, you know? This, I but, wanted the spirit maybe just move through everybody yeah, at one maybe. time. And... I don't know if there was a human or just a divine agent behind this, but I'm encouraged by it because uh, I think it's one of the, it's, it's one, as Catholics, it's one of our Achilles heels. We're not strong in the scripture. And that has a particular historical background. It does not have to do with how important the scripture is. Um, that is, in the ancient church, and I, I say this to those I teach the church fathers to, mm. I say, okay, look at this writing. We're looking at the writing of one of the great saints. Look at the footnotes. And, you know, there are 75 footnotes in five pages. <laughs> and every one of them is to a biblical text. Every one of them. Guy quotes 20 passages on a page. They breathe the scriptures. 
They were just soaked in them. This really was the early church. We have some ground to gain to gain that back. Yeah. It's not scripture versus our tradition or versus devotional practice or something like this. This is a false opposition. It's the scripture, um, in a sense, uh, inundating us in the word of God so that everything else in our tradition is scripture soaked and informed in a way that deeply enriches it and grounds it in the word of God. Nice. So um, on that note, for those of us, uh, sorry, can't talk this morning. For those who are looking how to grow in scripture, like you said, there's the, for the Diocese of Lansing, we have our year in the podcast. Uh, there's the Father Mike Schmitz. And uh, something that came to my attention recently as well is that there's for lay people, so people who aren't priests and things like that, who want to study scripture at a seminarian level, but maybe don't want the academic side of it. There is the Catholic Biblical, I'm going to get the name a little off, but the Catholic Biblical Institute or college, I think. They're great, by the way. They really do excellent work. Yes. And so it's a once a week class. Um, you can either do it in person or online, but both versions are live with a live instructor. Mm-hmm. So you're not watching a recording. Yeah. And they go through the Bible once a week. It's a four-year thing. You go, oh, I don't want to commit to four years. You don't have to. You can do one year and call it. You can also come back after several years and pick up where you're at. And they go through the Bible, basically they do the covenant in the first year, then they jump to the New Testament, they come back to the old and finish with the new. And they do it in a structured way that gives you seminarian level education so that you can understand scripture and know it without having to do a master's program or something like that. Um, There's also the Catholic commentary on sacred scripture, which goes over the New Testament. I know you have a few, which we're going to touch in just a sec. Um, and then for, if you want the Old Testament, one of the ones I've been working through in my master's program that's been phenomenal, is a Catholic introduction to the Bible, the Old Testament. And that's by uh, Bergsma and Petrie, uh, which are great people to follow. Uh, you've put out some books in the past as well, haven't you? Yeah, I, I was asked to contribute a, a volume in this commentary, on, Catholic commentary on sacred scripture. I did a volume on 1 and 2 Peter and the letter of Jude. And then when I finished that, I was asked to take on the letters of John. Okay. I actually, I think someone had been asked to do it and then had to back out. So I was the backup. <laughs> and so I did a part volume. Okay. Um, the, the, the editors of that series have boldly um, stepped forward to, tr- to try to do some uh, books of the Old Testament too. And I, I, I've been asked to, to do one of those. I'm working on it and a couple of others are being worked on. As with all these things, we'll see if it ever happens because it's mm-hmm. a big work. But we're trying right now to do some basic books of the Old Testament as well. And as you were highlighting, Andy, I think it's crucial to have different levels. Mm-hmm. You know, following the Bishop's Year of the Bible, it's very simple. You read a chapter a day, a little commentary at points. It's very simple. Father Mike Schmitz, I understand, is a bit more like 10 to 15 minutes with more reading. It's more scripture. It's got commentary every day. It's a little bit more involved, but still pretty simple and accessible. And, and then the Catholic Bible, Biblical Institute, you know, Bible Institute, that's an, another level up. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're different levels, but let me offer this. Um, the key step in growing a knowledge of the Bible is to read it, yep. mm-hmm. simply to read it. It's not that hard. You don't need a degree to read it, especially if you are ready to say, you read a chapter or you read a book, you go, okay, I don't know what that meant. That was completely, I, yeah, I, I don't know where I am. Never mind. Move on. Try something else. Um, the Bible is not that hard to get hold of. And the way that you learn the Bible and you get it in you is you actually read it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my main recommendation to people is uh, pick wherever it's going to be helpful, but actually read it. 
read it with faith and prayer, read it simply. Don't worry about what you don't know. You can, you can seek those things out, but there will always be things you don't know. There's still things I don't know, um, really. And um, you can still gain great, great help. So the key thing in becoming biblically literate, like many things, is to, is to read it yeah. and then grow and, and use these various tools to help you understand better what you're reading. Sorry, we're going to pitch in some. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, personally, I guess scripture has become so much more alive for me. And I love that you use the word living to describe the word and contrasting that to being dead and having kind of a new being because of knowing Christ through the scriptures. I think that's a really good distinction. And I think especially um, if you want something more like a prayer, the liturgy of the hours can be a really good recommendation because that's very structured, but you're getting soaked in the scriptures. If you, if you persevere in that, even for a month, like maybe that's your Lenten thing, read the, the liturgy of the hours every day, then those Psalms especially really come to life. And I found myself since I read those, you know, growing up or at times I've focused more on praying those, those certain passages will just stand out to me or yeah. I'll, I'll see the sunrise and I'll think of Psalm 19. And mm -hmm. it's just like the scripture becomes part of your life, part of what you're breathing in. And you start thinking along the lines of God's word and really starting to have the mind of Christ, which we're all called to have. Yeah. So that can be another great method. I think that's right. The more it's different than any other kind of book. We read a book, we go, okay, that was fun. I got a murder mystery done. I got a novel. Mm -hmm. the scripture you want to keep reading and kind of breathe in it is breathing in it's drinking in and then it comes out of your pores it comes out of your mind it comes out of your mouth it and and then we are really imitating the first christians in the first centuries that's really how they went about things and how amazing is that to have that connection to them praying the same prayers that they prayed yeah which is the word of god what a gift yeah. yep that's exactly right it's a great privilege and then there's the uh, method known as uh, lecto divina i Mm -hmm. Divina. Yep. Yeah. yeah, that's where you actually play, pray with it. You, you play with it. No, uh, you pray with it, <laughs> turn on it. And, I, I uh, believe there's like, you know, you read through it four different times mm -hmm. in like four different ways with four different perceptions. And actually we're not sponsored by them, but hey, shameless plug. Uh, I actually use the Halo app, which has a Lecto Divina guide. So it's nice for me because it reads the scripture to you or you can read it yourself at the same time. Um, but then you just get to focus on meditating on the scripture and it guides you through it. So it, it'll say, okay, at this phase, do this. And it'll, it'll be silent while you do it. Uh, it also has Gregorian chant music you can play on the background if you really want to get into it. Um, and then <laughs> really it'll come out of that phase. It. Exactly. And then it comes out of that phase and says, okay, now we're going to go back to the next phase and you want to do this part. And it, it takes you through the four steps rather well. And then the nice part at the end of it is you can actually put notes in. So what did I get from this or what came to me or things like that and you can tap it right into the app and so especially if you're on the go and you don't have a way to write it down or catalog it and you can go back and look at your notes and be like, okay where what is the sense i'm getting in prayer and is, is there a pattern and so it can really help you so yeah if you're a beginner at it um, or you just don't want to do it necessarily on your own you like guided things i would absolutely recommend the halo app um, it, it also has like meditation as well yeah. uh, catholic guided meditation and it's really great if you need to fall asleep just throwing it out there too so <laughs> that's great Halo app and a way to blanket, man. I'm telling you, it's <laughs> spiritual cuddles. All right. So speaking of scripture and all that, and we, we talked about the Old Testament, you brought up like, you know, if you don't get it and move on, I know as Catholics, a lot of times, uh, lay Catholics, I should say, for a lot of us, we look at the Old Testament as kind of like grandpa's stories, like, yeah, okay, grandpa, that was great. <laughs> and we, we jump into the gospels. How do we as Catholics get something out of the Old Testament? Um, and really draw the treasures out of it when it can be very confusing. Cause one thing is, I mean, it's, as you mentioned before, it's written by 
the Jewish culture for Jews. And then of course it got adapted into Christianity and moved on. And so I would say there's some, you know, it's hard for us as modern day Christians to go back and totally understand the old Testament, even with all its beauty. So what, what's a good way to get, as you put it, treasure out of the old Testament? Yeah. I'm not sure I've got a simple formula, but I'll try to, to, <laughs> to sort of uh, open up some avenues. Um, first of all, I think there's a, a kind of simple instinctual reading that most people bring to it that doesn't require a great deal of expertise, philosophical questions and the rest. I mean, things come up, but quite honestly, reading the stories, reading the accounts, um, we don't have trouble reading novels. Right. We don't have trouble reading stories. We just jump in and, and sort of take it for what it is and, and go with it. Um, reading the Old Testament's a little bit like that. Sort of in, in a sense, jump in and go with the flow. Jump in the river and go with where it takes you. Uh, the most natural reading of the, of the scripture, especially the Old Testament, is what we would call a moral or tropological reading. It's the third sense of the, of the four senses. I know that you were thinking about talking about these senses. Mm-hmm. Simply put, it's what does the scripture say? What, you know, what am I reading and how does it apply to me now and today? I used to do this in my intro to scripture class. I would, I would have different students. I'd assign a scripture and I'd say, okay, you've got three minutes. Tell us what you think. And I'd give no, no, no direction at all. I'd say, you come up with something. Four out of five times, they came up with what I would call the moral reading of the text. And I would say, this is absolutely native. This is what we naturally do. We don't have to be taught this. You read the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac or, or almost sacrificing Isaac, you know, and you're like, oh. mm-hmm. you kind of get into it. And you go, oh my gosh, your heart starts beating. And, and what do you do? Well, you know, you think about it, and you go, wow, that was quite a thing the Lord asked of him and he held it back. And then he, one of the most natural things is to say, wow, in my own life, is the Lord asking me to give back anything that he's given me? You know, like, here's the firstborn son, this sort of answered prayer. Do I need to give this back to God in some way? It's a natural reading. Well, there's nothing reading Genesis 22 that tells you to apply it to your, you know, your career. This is a personal application. That's the moral reading of the, of the Old Testament. It's very natural. So one of the main avenues is reading it in light of what's God saying, you know, what does it tell me about God and the way he works? And what does it tell me about any word for me? Now, it's also useful to know that the Old Testament is at one and the same time, absolutely foundational and provisional. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's not like it's only provisional. Like we, Otherwise, we would not have a Bible. Excuse me. We would not have a Bible like this. Mm-hmm. The fact that we bound our Bible with the Old and New Testament says that we continue to need the reading of the Old. It's not just, it's not just a kind of... Um, you know, the rocket launcher that got us up out of the atmosphere and then it falls back and we abandon it. It continues to be the accompanying one. So, and it has foundational truths. You know, Jesus talking about divorce, he goes, what does it say in the beginning? He goes right back to Genesis. Jesus upholds readings of the Old Testament. What are the greatest commandments? He quotes the Torah as completely fully operational for Christians. So parts of the the Old Testament is still foundational and yet it's provisional because it's also, it is pointing forward to something that fulfills it. It, it isn't the completion. It, it has partial revelation. And my gosh, at one point, the Jews come to Jesus and say, well, if divorce isn't okay, why did, why did Moses, you know, command people to do it this way when they wanted to divorce their wives? 
Jesus's answer is astounding. Moses allowed the people to divorce because of their hardness of heart, mm. but it was not so from the beginning. In other words, there are things that were allowed because of where the people were that are not ideal, that are not the finished product, that don't show the fullness of God's plan. So you've got something in the Old Testament that's absolutely foundational, and yet it's also provisional and partial. Mm. Sometimes it points forward to something fuller. Sometimes there's something in it that reflects a time that the revelation isn't yet full, and so you're, you're not living the fullness of what God would have. It's complicated in that sense, when you're trying to understand how to apply it now beyond the kind of, hey, I can just apply this to my life. So that requires a little bit more teaching mm -hmm. and instruction. Uh, and the way that a lot of times you learn that is by good, is by good preaching or good teaching. People help you say, well, this is how you might handle this. This is how Christ this is how the church has related to this. Uh, this difficulty, let's say, in the Old Testament, or this this particular issue that, that comes up. I'll stop there to let some more questions come in if need be. Well, that distinction, I think, is so insightful between provisional and foundational. And this is, again, going back to the Father Mike Schmidt's podcast that I've been listening to this year, but he's got very similar points about how mm -hmm. at the beginning, there's this journey that the Israelites are taking, and there's such brokenness in them coming out of Egypt. They're, they're made to be slaves, or they have been slaves for so long, but they're made to be free, and the Lord is teaching them how to live a free life, and there's so much that they have to learn. It's really, he's growing his family, he's teaching them, he's moving them towards the fullness of the truth that comes in Jesus, uh, but even at that same time, there's still the foundational truths of God's mercy, God's love, God's fatherhood, and all of that is present in the scripture, and yeah, I think the teaching part sounds important too. I've definitely learned a, a ton from Father Mike Schmitz's um, yeah. commentary on on the chapters through like Genesis and Exodus and really some of the difficult parts. It's been very enlightening. Um, but yeah, that that distinction I think between provisional and foundational is is really good to keep in mind. And you can you can see that kind of like in the beginning of the desert wanderings, you have the Levitical law, mm -hmm. and then near the end you have the Deuteronomical law, and they're yeah. they're not exactly the same. They're not exactly the same. And of course, the Jewish rabbis, you know, are constantly arguing, trying to figure out how to put stuff together that isn't identical. Well, when do you do that? When do you do this? And the books weren't written in a kind of neat constitutional way by some constitutional convention where you work everything out and get everything sorted. And you've got a complicated thing that came over many generations, many centuries even, as God was working. And there's clearly a development. Things were revealed that weren't there earlier. God showed his plan more fully. He, you know, he, he works with us where we are. And part of the good news is that God works with, with us where we are. I mean, many of us kind of, in a sense, almost repeat the Old Testament lesson. Yeah. We, we learn some fundamental things, but we've got a lot of things that aren't right in our minds and in our lives. And God doesn't say, well, never mind you, get out of here. He, he has mercy on us, he calls us his sons and daughters, works with us, and we slowly go, wow, this part of my life's really not in order. And, and mm -hmm. now I see it. I didn't see it before. Thank God I didn't get completely rejected, but now the Lord's showing me or I'm learning something about who God is. I had a wrong idea about that. I just didn't understand quite rightly, but God was still there working. So in, in many ways, our lives kind of imitate what happens in the Old Testament. Foundational things are given, but there are provisional things in us that still need to change. And God has mercy and works with us over time to bring us to greater fullness. I was going to say, uh, doing uh, some of the stuff for my class, one of the things I really have enjoyed about scripture, especially the Old Testament, is, as you've all said in different ways, if you go back and look at it, 
Old Testament is God showing, revealing to us one, his presence, but two, that he's a personal God. He walks with us in these things. Uh, you know, you see with Abraham, he walks through him in the different covenants. Wow. And uh, Abraham keeps making mistakes and he keeps tripping up just like the Israelites did, just like everybody did. And God meets them where they're at and works with them where they're at and relates to them where they're at, but then is always calling them to where they can be. And I think that's what trips a lot of people up, especially reading the Old Testament when you have some of the, okay, well, like you said, why did God allow for, you know, when they talk about slavery and you shouldn't eat shrimp and kind of the national laws that they had, it's, well, that was never his plan, but he also wasn't going to force something on them. He was going to work with them where they're at and then kind of nudge them along gently through time to get them to where they want to be. And that's, that's a lot of hope for us because it means that from the start, God knows, okay, you guys are broken. I'm going to have to meet you where you're at. I'm going to have to nudge you along, but I'm never going to force you. If you respond to me, I'll guide you, but only if you choose that. And if you choose that, then I'll help you get to where I've really called you to be from the beginning. Yeah. And in, in kind of a way, the narrative of the Old Testament, I can look back in my life and just see it almost follows like almost a narrative of human development and stages. So you have like Adam and Eve who are like these really naive children growing up through Abraham, who's like, you know, the, the ninth nine-year-old who knows what he knows and then doesn't know anything and is asking God desperately for help up through like Moses, who's kind of that teenager. He's like, okay, God, but what's your name? You know, trying that Egyptian trick of getting the name of the gods you can control. And it's like when you try to call your parents by the first name, right. and it really doesn't end well. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Uh, and it's just almost mirrors like the development of each individual themselves. And you can see the different characters in yourself in your past, or at least I can. Yep. Yep. No, I think that seeing that, that, that there are complications in reading the Old Testament on, on many levels, but I think you can get, um, you can understand a lot of them by this kind of developmental model. Real revelation is given when the Lord says, the Lord, the Lord on, on Exodus 34, a God, uh, merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. This doesn't change. This is God's nature. It's not like, well, yeah, I, don't, I didn't really mean that. Uh, here's how I really am. That's a foundational truth. It's it's upheld throughout the scriptures and it, it informs the New Testament. But other things like divorcing one's wives or how you treat this or that or other thing in this particular purity law, it may have had a purpose and a place, um, but it doesn't end up having in the, in the church um, especially a church of the Gentiles who are not called to become Jews, it doesn't have the place that it once did in Israel. And so yeah. there are things that you move on toward. Yeah. And the repetitions, the, the, one of the keys of, you know, what's a foundational truth? Well, what's repeated the most. And what's also, as you pointed out too, what has Christ gone back and reasserted in exactly. that? Because, you know, he's God. So yeah. big deal. Big Again, G. Repetition. Exactly. You look at, you know, we talk about the Sermon on the Mount as kind of the Magna Carta of, of the disciple. And if you decide to dig deep, all the Beatitudes are found in the Old Testament. They're restatements of Old Testament truths. These are not like the Gnostic Christ comes down and gives us new new revelation that wasn't there. It's, it, it's really Christ summarizing and, and, and framing and crystallizing um, truths that are there very clearly in the Old Testament already. Um, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Right. So this is a crucial, what we're, there's always the tendency to become Gnostics. Yeah. That's with the capital G, you know, um, who 
basically say the God of the Old Testament isn't really the God of Jesus Christ. We can dispense with him. We can cut our Bibles and just have the new. But if you, if you don't keep the old and the new, you lose both. Mm-hmm. You fundamentally, it'll unravel in the end. This is the lesson of the church's controversy with Gnosticism in the second century, which was the first great controversy after the New Testament period. And it's the lesson learned that still needs to be re-won and and fought in some way, uh, because there's a tendency to want to go off into more, leave all that behind and just have our own way of taking Christ and taking him off the way we want him, rather than the presentation of Christ, who does come from the scriptures, which, as it's quoted, is the Old Testament. Yeah, the, the as, as Bishop Barron would say, deracinated Christ, taken out from the soil with which he grew from. Absolutely. So right. That's a lovely word, isn't it? Deracinate. Yes, I know. I'm going to have to look that up because I have no idea what that means. <laughs> I, I took, you know, the ASVAB. I didn't get to take the officer's exam. Um, so I'm going to kind of shovel us along here um, a little bit because we're getting towards the end of your time. So uh, in the Catechism 129, it says Christians read the Old Testament in light of Christ's uh, crucified and risen. And it also goes on to say the New Testament lies hidden in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is uh, unveiled in the New. The last part of this, and this will lead up to the question, is in the Catechism 122, it says the economy of the Old Testament was deliberately oriented so that it uh, should prepare for and declare and prophecy the coming of Christ, Redeemer of all men. So my two-part question is, and this will lead us in the New Testament a little bit, is where do we see, like, what are some ways we can see um, uh, Christ's um, prophecy in the Old Testament? And then how does the Old Testament get revealed or unveiled in the New Testament? And we'll use that to kind of leap into the New Again, I, you know, funny enough, I want to just hold up the Bible for a minute and say <laughs> the physical binding reflects what we do in our liturgies. Isn't it interesting that at least aside from a couple of special seasons, we always serve up at the table of the word an Old Testament portion mm. and then two new te- a New Testament portion or two New Testament portions. We continue to serve them together. Um, I think this is the pattern that you see. Uh, we continue to, d- to duplicate what Jesus did with his disciples on Easter day in Luke 24. What he did with them to reveal himself from the scriptures is what the church does every time they gather on that, on that Lord's day. Every time we gather, it's a new Easter. <laughs> and we are with Christ uh, gathered together to um, understand him as the, as the scriptures are opened. But isn't that interesting? If you take that, that snapshot of Luke 24, mm-hmm. here is the risen Christ present among them, the very one. I find it very interesting that he doesn't say, never mind about all that stuff that came before, here I am. You can just, you know, he actually, to, to put it kind of uh, uh, candidly, he does a Bible study with them. You're speaking mm-hmm. of the road to Emmaus. And yeah. the road to Emmaus as well. Exactly earlier in that chapter, precisely. So the Lord himself chooses to reveal, even though he's there in person, here he is. He still does the Bible study from the Old Testament. When we talk about the Eucharist being, in a sense, the Lord in person, obviously not in quite the same way. We distinguish the kinds of bodily presence that he has, but it's really the Lord. And yet we read the scriptures 
in order to understand the one who's made present, just like happened on the road to Emmaus and in Luke 24. So there's this, there's this mutual illumination. And that's why that little couplet you were reading makes so much sense, that one unveils the other, the other is found in the other. As Jerome said, you know, ignorance of the scripture, I mean, the Old Testament is ignorance of Christ. If we, if we don't know Christ from the Old Testament, we're making up a Christ of our own making. And that's, of course, what people do all the time. They make Jesus into the one they want him to be. They either, they either, yeah, they reject him or they just redefine him. But if we want the Christ who's actually given, it's given in the scripture. And yet, if the Lord himself is in present, he's the true exegete. You know, this passage in John 1.18, no one has seen the Father, the Son has made him known. That word, Greek word, made him known, is the Greek word exegeo, which is to, to lead out, to draw out, to draw out the meaning. It's where we get the word exegesis. The Son is the exegete of the Father. And mm. so if we want it, we need the Old Testament to know the Son, but we need the Son to understand what the Old Testament is. We need to have both together, which is why Jesus in person opens the scriptures. We don't have just a single starting point to get the other, but each leads to the other. And so we have Christ among us or else we couldn't read the old, but without the old, we don't know Christ, who, the one who's among us, we don't know who he is. This is the kind of back and forth that goes on and, and constantly in the life of the church. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. I know. Oh, sorry. Uh, Go ahead. Yeah. I was reading uh, Dan Petrie's book on uh, the case for Jesus the other day. One of the things he points out is uh, Christ does this himself. So in the New Testament, if you will, when he's talking, he refers to himself as the son of man. And when you go back to Daniel's dream and all the dreams he had, the son of man is seen as a divine figure sitting next to God. And uh, a rabbi whose name I'm going to blank on, I apologize to that rabbi, talks about how in Daniel's dream, it's known that the son of man is both divine and human. And so even in, I would say the Jewish tradition, you have rabbi saying the you know, Christ who is fully human, fully man is even known in that. And so you see God or Jesus, I mean, who is God obviously, but he's talking to the, uh, to the Jews at the time in a way that they'd understand by referring back to the old Testament to signify to them. And as Dan, Petrie puts it, to get them to discern on who he is. So when he's in the temple and kind of refuting things, he's doing that so that they'll go back and start thinking about it and realize, oh, hey, there's these markers in the Old Testament that were to be the Messiah, and this man is now referring to those things. And then he goes on, he was talking to the paralytic when he forgives the sins and then heals the man. So he forgives the sin, they get upset, he responds that I am the son of man, i.e. I am the one who's sitting next to God in Daniel's dream, but then he heals them as a physical representation to the invisible divinity that he has so that they'll go and discern on who he is and come to the realization that he is Christ who is revealing God to us. No, that's, that's lovely. That's really true. And, you know, to draw that out even a little more, the question often was, are you the Messiah? Yeah. The Messiah was simply a human figure in Jewish thought. I mean, he really was a human figure. So the Lord acknowledges that. Of course, they also thought the Messiah was mainly going to be a kind of military king who would throw off the mm -hmm. So he was reluctant to just rely on that, though he was the Messiah, and it's clear the New Testament presents him as David's son, the Messiah. But the Son of Man is both more and less than the Messiah. This is the glory of that term, because it has two locations in the Old Testament. It's got Ezekiel, used dozens and dozens of times, where it largely means a man, a human being. It's used in Daniel. And it clearly refers to this divine, divine being, but who has some kind of connection to a man in the form of a man. 
By claiming to be the son of man, the Lord connects with both lines at once. He's truly a man. He's not a, a phantasm. He's not a, a divine being looking out the eyes of this corpse and this body. He truly is the man. But he's also this divine figure who's more than the Messiah. And so by saying the son of man, um, he's actually claiming not only to be the Messiah, but to kind of one-up it, you know, to be someone even more. And in that title is contained both the humanity and the divinity. Of course, you work this out, you see this more fully later on, but even in a kind of instinctual or initial way, people were getting a sense of, this is clearly a man, I can touch him. He's, he's healed, the, he put his hands in his eyes, and he's a man, but he's the son of man. Wait, wait a minute, who's this guy claiming to be? There's something more than a man here. So that, that's why that title is so um, uh, infectious. It, it has a great deal of, of uh, contained, revealed within it from its Old Testament roots. Yeah. And there's many, many prophecies that people refer back to in the Old Testament that show Absolutely. aspects of Christ's life. I mean, one of the more blatant ones to me is just Psalm 22, which Jesus was you know, reportedly saying on the cross. Mm -hmm. Yeah which contains that line, you know, why have you forsaken me? Yeah. Like the whole Psalm is like a whole story psalm. of what happened. Psalm. The Psalm's quoted at least four times. It's quoted several more times, different parts of it in John about the soldiers, you know, vying for this, his tunic, you know, who's yeah. going to keep it in. The seamless you know, garment. Yeah. Seamless, seamless garment. That's right. What is no, there's so many. Sorry, Sarah, go ahead. Oh, yeah, just probably going to say the same thing, but the faithfulness of God in fulfilling all these prophecies through his son really, mm. I think, gives us evidence of his constancy and the fact that he wants us to understand and to really know that he's always been there and that he, this is just a fulfillment of everything that he's promised. That's great. And, and one, of the, one of the key features of the way prophecy works, you only know what the prophecy means really once it's fulfilled. Right. Like, who would have known Psalm 22 was going to be in some ways literally fulfilled in this working out? I mean, nobody would have imagined that. Um, there's a set of prophecies like that, that you, a prophecy going forward kind of points in a direction, but you can't map it on the screen until it's, until that comes into focus in the one in whom it's fulfilled. You have an idea what it might mean, but you might be a bit wrong. You might not get it quite, you might not realize that that Jesus is not the fulfillment of one or two prophecies, but in some way, he's the mosaic that fulfills them all in striking ways and puts things together that you would never have put together by reading them and trying to look forward. Yeah. So the prophecies are there, but you really know what they mean when you see it fulfilled. And then you see this, here's the reality, here's the precondition. And then you see by looking back, it really does point to this one. And he does really, and so it's this back and forth that, that, reveals the connection this is what i mean about one reveals the other and the other shows the, the you know the one this is what that catechism selection is showing which i believe is a quote from augustine or jerome it's, it's augustine. augustine yeah no i yeah and one of my favorite things i mean for me that really connected everything was studying um abraham and his journey with especially isaac and just seeing how yeah. set that all up and how much it, it points to Christ, but also, I mean, it points to the priest whose name I'm going to forget, Melchizedek, I think. Right. 
and signifying to the mass and the Eucharist and just how much of that, like you said, the treasure and the richness that's in the Old Testament that once you start, like like I said, absolutely just start reading it. And then once you get comfortable with it, start diving in and you're going to see just a whole new world open. Yeah. Um, So if I have two questions to end the show on, but I want to give both of you a chance to ask anything you want to ask if there is anything. No, no, no. All right. So one question, uh, AJ was kind enough to remind me. So I was going through the catechism on scripture and in 1101, it says, Holy Spirit gives us a spiritual understanding of the word of God to those who read or hear it according to the disposition of their hearts. Now we've talked about just start reading it and that's the best thing to start doing, which we all agree. My question is, what does it mean by disposition of their hearts and how can that help people as they approach it or hear it? what the catechism is getting at is that the word of God is the word of God, but it only, it only, it's like the seed that lands on the path. If the disposition isn't right, that's truly the seed. It has the power of God in it, but if it lands on a hard path, it can make no penetration and the evil one comes and plucks it away as Jesus says. So I think it's, if we take the parable of the sower, Mm -hmm. it's getting at the same reality. The word is the word. It's, it's God's word. It, It comes and has life. But how it bears fruit in our lives will depend um, on, on our disposition to some degree. And uh, so the catechism is encouraging us not to, we, we never come perfectly, you know. I think the scripture captures it by the, those who seek will find. It doesn't say those who seek perfectly will find. But those who seek will find. That's good news for us. If our disposition is to seek, rather than a disposition to judge or to um, uh, acquit ourselves or to defend ourselves. If we're coming to the scripture, looking to cast the scripture away, we want to read it in order to dismiss it. We want to read it in order to make sure it doesn't apply to us. We're hardly likely to get life-giving words. Mm-hmm. But if we seek the Lord, however imperfectly, which all of us will do, we will find. I think that's that's the good news. We don't have to seek perfectly. We just have to seek and be wanting to know the word of God. The word will find its way in and, and begin to have its, 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 its right, its life in us. So with that too, like you said, having the life, one of the things I find interesting is because you, you'll say scripture to someone, you think like, okay, this is the word of God that should really move them and it doesn't. And so one of the things I, I had to come to make peace with, and it really made sense with Scott Hahn, which was and by studying scripture and studying Christ, the two illuminate each other because they're both the word of God. Right. Um. And just like Jesus, who was present physically, was rejected, so scripture will be rejected. Oh, I'm sorry. The phrase was, as Jesus was rejected by the world, and because the scripture is also the word of God, so scripture has to be rejected by the world. And so there is that aspect to it as well when you talk about the disposition of the heart. There is. And I'd also, in in pastoral practice, I would say, some people have, it's a spiritual obstacle that prayer can help break down. Mm-hmm. One of the ways that we help people isn't just say, hey, read this, but it's to pray for them. It's to, mm-hmm. it's to you know, <laughs> um, pray that the, the work of the evil one would be, would be blocked and done away with, that their minds would be open. So there's also a way we can help. We can't give someone the right spiritual disposition, um, but we can do more than hand them a Bible. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or just encourage them. I think we can pray and pray earnestly for them. And that prayer can remove obstacles and help create, help open someone to the grace of God. I've really seen that happen. So there's also a way that we can contribute. We can't produce, but we can contribute to in our prayer, 
a kind of disposition that will allow people to really receive the word and have life. That reminds me of uh, Acts 8 with Philip when he's just there next to the person as they're eventually receiving the word and just being there for them when the time comes. And exploring it and opening it up. That's right. That's right. All right. So the last question comes from one of our fans, if you will, who's usually at the show. Um, so this is a different Nick, not the one that's sitting here. But uh, to summarize his question, which I sent you, is he struggles when he reads the Old Testament of the fact that, you know, you find this commandment for God to kill people or tells the Levites to wipe out those who are worshiping the calf or go into the Holy Land and kill those who are there. How does someone, because I know this is a trip up for a lot of people. Yeah. How can we help people who see that or not rationally, excuse me, but like make peace with that and come to understand that God is still loving and merciful when there are things like that that exist in the Old Testament. Yeah. Or I would say even for the New Testament, when you, I think it was Paul, correct me if I'm wrong, talks about, you know, if, if you have a slave, then love him like a brother without directly saying like, okay, well, slavery is bad. And they see those kind of two positions. Yeah. Two very different questions. I mean, with slavery and with the passages about, um, that the seeming command to um, militarily and with, with arms take, take ground and, 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 and wipe people out. <clears throat> I think the first category is actually very difficult to deal with. I don't know that there's a, a sort of, well, here's just a simple answer, this is it. I think there are a few things that go into understanding it. Um, the first is from the point of view of the, of the Old Testament itself, and I think it's worth, worth taking this on, uh, the people that are there are not simply innocent. <laughs> right. You tend to think about them as just these innocent people who are just kind of slaughtered. Mm -hmm. um, for the Lord, especially in the land, the land is holy. The people are meant to live a certain way. When they're doing things that are against him, when they're living lives that are displeasing to him, they're not simply innocent. And the Lord is clear in the scripture that a set of these people, they're not like, hey, just go wipe these people out. Why not? We'll just get rid of them. Practice your, your weaponry. It's a kind of judgment for sin. Now, we may find that hard to receive, but it really is a kind of judgment. And I, I often will, will say this, but the Lord did it to his own people when they sinned. He basically said, all right, you forfeited the right to, to, to be in the land. I'm going to bring these other nations in, and, and they're going to do they're, they're going to do some bad things to you as well. You're going to suffer for this. So we tend to look at it as these are just innocent people by the wayside. But from the scriptural point of view, um, those who are following evil ways and worshiping false gods and doing and, and shedding blood are not innocent in that way. And it doesn't mean that they have to be judged, but that they could be without it being somehow unrighteous. Um, there's also the question, I call it the literal versus the sort of symbolic meaning of those. There's questions about how much of this actually happened. Did it, did it actually happen? Um, was the main meaning a symbolic one rather than a real one? Now, it may well have happened the way it's described, at least in some part. But there are others who will say um, probably some of this didn't happen in the way that it was given. In fact, while Israel was supposed to do this, what you find is there are all kinds of people still living in the land. They didn't do a very good job of it if they were supposed to do it. Mm -hmm. And the symbolic level is symbolic meaning, the spiritual meaning of it um, is quite powerful. Uh, conquering the land. That's like becoming a Christian and overcoming sin. Mm. Enemies in the land, the high places that you're not touching. These are areas of sin that you're not getting to and that you, 
you need to, you know, what does the scripture say, the New Testament say about sin? Put to death the misdeeds of the body. Put them to death. Don't just gently remonstrate with them and tell them to go away, uh, but put them to death. This is the language of Romans. And so there's something about the, this example, how you say, how should we read this? The same about the Psalms that describe these things. Yeah. The Christian tradition has always applied them to the spiritual life, to the, to the work of sin in our lives, and to a kind of, you know, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. There's a kind of, of determination where we're not, we know we're not supposed to do that literally. There's another case. Well, did Jesus really mean that? I don't know any, you know, only left-handed Christians, as it were, you know, <laughs> clearly it wasn't meant to be a literal command fulfilled, but it has a kind of determination and almost violence to it that's meant to say something about in the season of Lent, let's say, we're supposed to be determined at, at really putting away sin and putting to death that which is not of God in us. So you have a, a question of how to interpret at the literal level, which is challenging. But again, I would say we tend to read it through modern eyes rather than biblical eyes. But the main way the Christian tradition has read these passages and the Psalms is to read them in a spiritual sense, applied to the spiritual life and putting to death uh, the, the things in us that are not persons, but are the works of, of evil and sin. Yeah, and I, I think there's a passage uh, with Samuel, uh, you have to hack Ahab to pieces, like the king of evil, so to speak. Um, where he's telling the, the Israel leader of the time, I don't remember his name, but he's like, no, 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 you didn't kill the king. You have, and he takes up a sword and hacks the other guy to pieces. And you're like, what was that about? Well, yeah, he's the ruler of evil. You have to kill him. Yeah. Be pure. Before it's, like, God. it's like Star Wars before it was Star Wars. Yeah. Kill yeah, the city. Funny. We watch Star Wars and don't have any trouble with getting rid of evil. People. <laughs> it's like, great. And then we get all worked up about scripture. And I, again, I would say, from a biblical point of view, um, populations that are going about living in wicked ways are not simply innocent. Their lives are, in a sense, forfeit if the Lord wants to take them. And um, this doesn't answer the question simply. I don't mean that that's, well, that's it. That's, that's fine then. But it's worth at least that frame of mind. It's a different frame that we tend to bring to the, these passages. And in the so, last couple of weeks, Father Mike on his Bible in a Year podcast has delved into that question like well because this is when the israelites right now are coming into the land of canaan right how do you why, why are you killing everybody and he, mm -hmm. he's he's gently kind of guiding his audience through that like well god gave this land over to the israelites because the natives or the current natives of canaan sinned against the moral laws of god yeah real quick point uh for those who watch this way down the road what weeks are is he in roughly right now that you're referring to? Uh, he's currently on like days uh, 50, 58 today, I think, because 57 okay. was yesterday. So like mid-50s, if you're watching this later, you want to go back and find yeah. those, jump <laughs> into the mid-50s. All right, sorry, go ahead. No, that, that, I was kind of at the end. All right, so we're at the end of our time. <laughs> now, I pause there for a second so I can edit this next part out if I need to. Would you be willing to do one bonus question? that we can put on the end. If not, I'll edit out the fact that I asked this and no one will ever know. Oh, sure. Yeah. So for the bonus question that we'll get tied in later, I'll have to edit this around a bit. One of the things that got brought up to me is, so Christ says, I did not come to abolish the laws, but I came to fulfill them. And then we have the new covenant, covenant through the crucifixion. And this has been coming up the whole episode. So I was like, I think the Holy Spirit really wants me to get into this question. 
how do we know that we're not held to the old laws? Like the ones that you can't eat uh, shellfish, you can't touch pig skins because if otherwise the NFL are all going to hell, you know, or we could stone them, whatever. Um, <laughs> how do we know that the way we're living now is what Christ intended by that phrase and that we're not still meant to be held to those old ways? No, it's, it's actually, you know, we, it's easy to dismiss that question. It's like, oh, come on, it's obvious, but it's actually a real question. Mm. I would say the main reason, the main way we know, all of us who are in this, probably listening to this, is that in Acts 15, the early church got together about this very question and decided the Gentile believers in Christ did not need to keep the precepts of the law. Um, in fact, all they had to keep were a set of fundamental um, laws that probably are drawn from Leviticus 18, because it includes not only the Israelites, but strangers in the land are meant to do this, right. that primarily have to do with living together as Jew and Gentile, so that the Gentiles keep a basic approach that allows them to actually have fellowship with Jews. Um, so it's pretty clear that Gentile believers in Jesus were not required to keep the law. That was the whole point of that controversy. Right. That was the whole point of the story of Cornelius when Peter went and the Lord said, these unclean people, you're meant to go and proclaim the gospel to them. And the church concluded, Gentiles who believe in Jesus are not required to keep the various laws. Now, the, the challenging other side of that is, it does seem like the Jewish believers in Jesus did keep the law, right. at least in a basic way, at least in a way that was seen as observant. And this is one of those questions that has come up in the tradition and is returning today. Um, what is incumbent on Jewish believers in Jesus? Now, of course, the way the Jews themselves keep these laws today, there is no more temple. You can't even do that. You know, you know that it, it's not like they keep them all literally. They have their own way of keeping the law that's already a kind of spiritual application. The Jews have their own spiritual application by keeping the laws, but many of them they keep literally. So the question really isn't, what do Gentile believers do, which is the vast majority of us? <laughs> it's pretty mm -hmm. clear that the early church ruled that we're, we're not required to do that, in a sense, not recommended to do that. That was my dog. But, so that's, that's the basic answer. And then it leaves the question about those who are Jews who believe in Jesus, which, as you may or may not know, there, are, there, there has been and there is quite a number of Jewish believers in Jesus Right. some of whom just become, let's say, Catholic or Protestant or Orthodox. But there's a, a, a wider grouping as well that are remaining what they call Messianic Jews. Mm -hmm. And they believe that they're meant to stay part of the Jewish people and keep the law the way Jews keep the law today, not like they did in 500 BC or 250 BC or whatever, but to follow the law to be members of the Jewish people, not for salvation, not because this saves me, they, they would say, no, we aren't saved by keeping the law. The, Paul made that very clear. But it's appropriate for us as Jews to do it, which seems like the early Christians did. So you've got this question about what place is there for keeping the law for those who are Jews. It's clearly not for salvation, right. but it may be an appropriate thing because of a particular calling, the way that if you're called to be a, a Trappist monk, you keep certain practices that other Christians don't need to keep. They're not for their salvation, but they're appropriate to the way they're meant to express their call. So this is the, I'd say this is where the question comes up. But for most of us who are not Jews, <laughs> um, Acts, I think, 15 makes quite clear that we're not meant to keep the law. And the there's, there's one um, kind of part of that that uh, I was actually at Sacred Heart for one of the classes. 
was too that some of those laws are national really for the nation of Israel at the time and that's where so it comes into what were the moral laws and then what were the the laws of the nation right and then I mean there were still there's still some confusion like you said with what you dress within the moral but that's also another way we can separate it uh, correct me if I'm wrong but no for sure the ceremonial too which had a lot to do with temple worship when there's no temple they have to be adapted and the Jews have adapted them they're not trying to keep the laws they did at Jesus's time in the same way so you've got the ceremonial precepts You've got the more um, uh, civic precepts that have to do with commonwealth. Now, the fact that Israel is a nation raises that question again for Jews. Mm-hmm. They follow, uh, you know, and they don't simply follow the law. They, they're, they're a modern democracy. They're not looking, but there's Jews who live in Israel who think that it should be following right. the ways of, 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 the, of the Torah. So uh, you might say the more judicial civic laws are still an issue in a way that the ceremonial are not because there's not a, a living temple. Listen, as Catholics too, I mean, with the way our tradition is progressing, like you said, with the Acts 18, for us, it's more just looking at the moral side of things at this point as well. Yeah, right. And and, and there's a long tradition there. There's there's discussion, there's still issues, but there there's a long, good, solid tradition of how we keep the law in Christ that I think guides us and answers 99% of the questions we might face, even if there's 1% that we might still wonder about, you know. All right. So that's all I've got for this episode. Do you have any quick follow-ups or anything? Well, I was just going to say that um, a lot of our traditions, uh, when we go to the mass, mm-hmm. reflect some of those ceremonial yes. laws, but in a more spiritual manner as well. Sure. So it's it's kind of like, as Christ said, I came to fulfill it, not to cast it away. So yeah. we're, we're living those ceremonial laws or those, sometimes even the national laws in a more a more full sense. I'm going to say the catechism actually backs you up on this. Um, 1096 it says a better knowledge of the Jewish people's faith and religious life. This is over uh, talking about a sacred scripture section under the liturgy. Uh, a better knowledge of the Jewish people's faith and religious life as professed and lived now can help our better understanding of certain aspects of the Christian liturgy. There you Thank go. you. Word. There you go. All right. Uh, Dr. Keating, any last words you'd like to add? No, thanks for doing this. I, it's great to talk about the scripture. It seems to be in the air, and I hope that this this discussion will will just encourage people both to read and to read with insight. Absolutely. Would you uh, be comfortable taking us out in prayer? I'd be glad to. Thank Let's you. pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Lord God, we lift back to you the very word you've given us, the word who is your Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, not only enlightens our mind, but comes to live in us. Lord, make us more and more like the one who's come to us. Make us like that word. We might be made more and more in his image and likeness. And Lord, I pray that for us and for all those listening, you would uh, electrify your word in our lives, that you would open up your word, that you would illuminate it so that we might receive that word and have life from that word and imitate and come to be more and more in the image and likeness of that word, our Lord Jesus Christ. And in his name, we pray all these things. Amen. 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 Thank you for your time and being on the show. Uh, This was amazing. And once again, this is Mysterious John, and we will see you in our next episode. Have a great time. Thanks, Dr. Keith.